Hey, welcome. This is Pastor Tyler Whitcomb. I just want to say on behalf of the leadership of Fos Church, we are so glad that you're checking out the Fos Church podcast. At Fos, we believe in the authority of God's Word and the ability it has through the power of the Holy Spirit to change the hearts of mankind and to mold and shape its readers into the image of Christ. And so we pray that these messages would do just that, that you would hear God's word and be changed by it. Lastly, our encouragement is, if you do not belong to a local Bible-believing church, that you would do so, because a podcast will never allow you to serve the purpose that God has called you into belonging to the church. Thinking two verses to start off a series? That doesn't sound right. It's not. Um, we're pretty much covering three chapters today, so we got a lot of work to do. Um, and good morning, church. Great to be with you all this morning. Um, I thought we were going to have to maybe bribe you all to sit in the middle section. I was very self-conscious about it. Um, I, I thought, hey, we're going to move the middle two sections together and maybe start forcing some interaction. Um, and we'll, we'll try it out for at least a month, and we'll see what happens from there. Um, but you all did it. So I guess you know, next week we were going to hide a, a key to a new car underneath one of the seats and tell you, go sit in the middle, somebody gets a car. But and thankfully, we don't have to do that now. So thank you all for cooperating and participating. Um, and uh, if you're here for the first time, we are starting a new series, uh, A Tale of Two Kings. And my name is Tyler Whitcomb. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here. And um, what we do is we typically just find a book of the Bible and we just walk through it. Um, I believe the, the Bible, um, though an ancient text, has uh, much application for today, that it's good news, not just from old, but now, and it's the only good news that teaches about a living hope. Uh, all of their hopes can be fleeting and they don't satisfy and they don't last. Um, but, but we found a hope in Jesus that transcends times and cultures and places. And it's good news for every tribe and tongue and language because that's what heaven's gonna be, right? This is gonna be this gathering around the throne room from every tribe and every tongue and every language and they're gonna say this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He's eternally God. He's always been and will always be. And so that's what we've come and that's what we gather for, to worship, to, to talk about the, the majesty that is God. And he's not just the God of the Old Testament, he's the God of the New Testament. And we see Jesus revealed in the old, but he's concealed in the new, right? We're, we're calling this a tale of two kings, but really this is a tale of three kings, um, these, these are the first two anointed kings of Israel that we're going to kind of look side by side. King Saul that we saw today in our, our, our scripture reading, right? He's the, the first anointed king of Israel. And then we have David. And David's going to be a foreshadow of a king that would really come for his people. The king that, that God intended for his people will show up. Um, and so anytime you see um, in the Old Testament, talking about futuristic, talking about, you know, then the people will praise their King David. David's just this messianic stand-in. He's just this, uh, they, they say the name David because they don't know the name Jesus. And so um, 
we get to talk about that. We get to see um, that story, the story of Jesus, even in uh, the story of David. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna dive into it. Um, and as we look at these two figures, again, David is not a perfect figure by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I'm gonna ask some questions. We do have some law enforcement in the room, so um, I, I don't think they'll arrest you, but anybody have kill anybody? And then maybe have sex with that person's wife? Oh, okay, so none of you have the trump card on David. None of you are worse sinners than David. And yet he's attributed to be a man after God's own heart. And so that's what we want to see. We want to get into that heart of that king that was a man, a, a humble shepherd boy who would be named king. Um, and so he's a man after God's own heart. We want to see that in, in our series, A Tale of Two Kings. But, but here's some backstory. You see, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, there was this guy, Abraham. And God makes this promise to him. He, he says, hey, I'm going to, through you, through your descendants and your offspring, I'm going to make a great nation of people. We're going to call them my chosen people. And so through his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, you see God establish this, these peoples, this nation of Israel. They're called God's chosen people. And you might think, hey, there must be something special about these people, right? I mean, they're God's chosen people people, but yet what you'll see throughout the Old Testament is this is not a, a peoples that we necessarily want to emulate, right? They, they, are, they are hot and they're cold. They're yes and they're no. They're in and they're out. They're up and they're down. They're wrong when it's right. I'm not quoting Katy Perry. Um, <laughs> that was that song, so I apologize if you didn't catch on. Um, but that's these people. They're, they're just these rebellious people. And sometimes with God, they're cool. And other times they're not. And they go and they worship pagan gods and they find themselves in idolatry. You know, this is, a, and they, they find God's judgment on them. And then God delivers them out of that judgment. It's this vicious cycle you see in the Old Testament. And, and one of the things about the nation of Israel that, that you see is that there's times when they think they're God's frozen chosen. Like, like, like God chose us and just us and we're God's special people. Hey, God chose you to be his instrument to the rest of the world. That, that's essentially what God did in calling them his chosen people. And yet the thing that when you see continually throughout their sin and their rebellion, the thing that you'll see most often, the sin that's plaguing them is pride. And I'd have to imagine that'd be an easy sin to fall in, right? If you're being told, hey, you're God's chosen people. There must be something special about me. If I'm, if I'm God's chosen people, then I'm varsity. I'm, I'm top notch. I'm, I'm the big cheese. And yet this is not what God thinks about the nation of Israel. This is what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the people's who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God says, hey, listen, Israel, you weren't the sexy pick. Well, you, you weren't the pretty girl to be asked to the prom. 
I, I, that, that's not why I chose you. I didn't choose you because you were great. I chose you because I, God, am great. That's why God chose these people. He was going to get more glory through these rebellious, broken, sinful people. But they weren't chosen because they were choice. You see that? He says, I didn't choose you because you were great in number. I chose you because I set my love and I'm making my commitment to your fathers. And so, again, this is this continual cycle. God delivering his people. You see that right there at the end of that passage. The, the mighty hand that's redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And, and so when we pick up in 1 Samuel, the, these people, the guys some people have been removed from, from Egypt, uh, Egypt, from the Egyptians, for 400 years now. And in this time, in this stretch of time, they're not being ran by kings. God has given them judges, but, but ultimately they have a king. Yahweh, God, is their king. And yet they look around, they look at all the other nations and they say, hey, we want what everybody else has. We, we, we want these, these kings that are gonna rule us and reign. And, and that's what we want. And so Samuel, the last judge of Israel, he begins to hear the, the, the clamor. He begins the, 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 the comments, the complaints of the people that they want a king. And as he internalizes it, he begins to wonder, hey, is there something wrong with me? Am I doing something wrong? Hey, I know my kids went wayward, but I try to be faithful and I try to lead them in the ways of the Lord. And so how is that on me? And he begins wondering, hey, is there something I've done? He begins thinking, hey, I, I, I've dropped the ball if they're demanding a king. And this is what God says. As Samuel's internalizing his criticism. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being the king over them. According to all the deeds that they've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them uh, and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Did you see what God said to Samuel? This is Samuel chapter 8. This is right before Israel's going to get their king. He says, your faithfulness to me is what the people don't like. And you aren't the problem. And you aren't the problem. And I don't know who needs to hear that this morning. I don't know who needs to hear that. But when you're faithful to God in the home or in the workplace or in the public arena and people revile you for it, you don't need to take that personally. Example, you're, you're at work. You, know, you got coworkers, you got a boss, and maybe somebody is asking you to lie, right? And you say, hey, you know what? I, I just can't participate in that. I just can't lie. You know, I, I don't feel right about that. And, and maybe people, in, why aren't you just going along with the program? This is good for everybody else. Can't you just lie? Can't you just... And maybe you start thinking, am I the problem? You're not the problem. The problem is that the flesh has a nature. And the nature of the flesh opposes God. It opposes God. Um, I think it's in Romans chapter 8. It says that the mind that's governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So the mind is governed by the flesh. Like, like if it's just this, my sinful state, my human nature, 
I am not on my own going to naturally submit to what God, how he's wired the world to work. I just, I'm going to see it polar opposite. And, and so when people get mad, they're not mad at you. They're mad that lying's not okay. That's essentially what I believe God is saying to the, to the prophet Samuel. Hey, you think they're rejecting you. They're rejecting me and how I've operated the world to work. And he says, but hey, you know what? If a king's what they want, then let's give them a king. Whatever they're asking for, give it to them. And I think that's one of the most scariest things you can see in the scriptures, that given enough rebellion, enough sinful, uh, man's sinful heart enough, long enough, God will just say, fine, ha have what you want. That's what you want? Okay, then, then go experience it. And God has wired the world in such a way that if you were to venture away from his will, venture outside of his design, then it's going to hurt. Life is not going to be fun, and you'll see that the world is bankrupt. God wired the world to be that way. And so Israel, just like even Romans 1, when you see Paul write to the church at Rome, and he says, for they exchanged the creator for the creation. Israel, just like that, exchanged the king for a king. Israel exchanged the king for a king. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel 9. It'll be up on the screen. We're going to look at the first two verses. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a man who looked just like Tyler Whitcomb. Oh, sorry, I was reading out of the TWV again. Um, he was a handsome man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. I'm a little disturbed that you all chuckled, though. Like, is that not true? Um, but we have Saul, right? Saul shows up into the scene, and he just, according to Samuel, he just has the look. You see that guy walk by, you don't just think, hmm, he's a good-looking guy. He, he's just a head turn. He grabs your attention. He holds your attention. Right, right? He would cause women to blush. Like, he just has this, this look and this appeal, and, and people get zoned in on him. And, and he has, he's taller than every other person. Even, it's upsetting to babies when you don't think I'm beautiful. Um, <laughs> But Saul, he, he also comes from wealth. His father has a lot of agriculture and livestock. I mean, that, that's a point that they want to make. Like, hey, this is not just a guy from a bad situation or a bad socioeconomic status. No, he comes from privilege, right? He comes from money. And, and that's, at that time, livestock, agriculture, that drove the commerce, right? If you had that stuff, that, that was a sign you had wealth, you had power, uh, I mean, so his father has a bunch of donkeys go loose, and he sends Saul out to go get those donkeys. Again, I want you to see some of these things that can be quickly overlooked. At the beginning, Saul seems like a good choice. He's obedient to his father, right? His, his father, who has wealth and status, he, he says, hey, son, come here. Saul, come here. Um, those donkeys got loose. Why don't you, you know... Go out, and, and it might be a long journey, so take food and things along with you and go out there and find those donkeys. He doesn't say, come on, Dad, like, I'm doing my thing. Like, 
You've got servants. You have people that are hired hands. Why don't they go out and do it? No, Saul's like, okay, dad, that's what you need. I'm going to go do it. Hey, responds well to authority. Might be a good choice to be a leader. Um, And then Saul does go out and he begins looking for his dad's donkeys. And then along the way, they, they start entering into a land that's near where Samuel's at. And they get wind, hey, there's a guy That's a prophet, because Samuel wasn't just the last judge of Israel, but he's also the nation's first prophet. And so, hey, there's a guy that he can speak on God's behalf, and he can, everything he says comes true. So let's go find Tim. Maybe he can direct us in the way of the donkeys. And so, um, the day prior to uh, Saul arriving to where Samuel would be, God tells Samuel, hey, I'm sending you the next guy that's supposed to be king, and you're going to anoint him to be king. And when you see him, it'll just make sense. So this is what 1 Samuel 9, 16, this is what God says to Samuel. Tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be the prince over my people, Israel. He shall save my people from the land of the Philistines for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Notice something from the text. If we can leave that text up there just for a minute. God refers to Saul as the prince over my people. Don't miss that. God says, hey, you know know what, Israel? You may have rejected Yahweh as your king, but I'm not getting off of the throne. You are still my people, and the person that's gonna rule over you is gonna be a prince, ultimately. Right, so so God says, hey, um, this this guy, he's gonna come from the the land of Benjamin, and you're gonna, he's gonna be the king over my people, God says, um, I found the perfect match. I found the one who my people would actually want. I'm going to send him to you, Samuel. And that's an important detail to notice. I am going to send him to you. I will send you a man. Um, This is a major doctrine throughout the scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, you see this. It's the doctrine of providence. The doctrine of providence. Um, that God's hand is involved and God's hand's working amidst what seemingly might be small, insignificant moments. So when you think about this, I want you to think about the story of Joseph in Genesis. In Genesis 36, Joseph's dad says to him, hey, son, I want you to go. I want you to find your brothers. Um, they're, they're out, they're, they're, they're herding sheep. And I want you to find them. I want you to send them this message. And, and as he gets sent out, Joseph goes to this far off land to find his brothers and he begins to get lost in a field. And as he's getting lost, a man approaches him and he says, hey, I'm, I'm looking for this land and I'm gonna need to find my brothers. And the man points him in the right direction. The man gives him directions on how to get there. And if that's all the story you know, it's gonna be a really sad story because in that, the man gives him directions but those directions lead Joseph into slavery. So you, so you might say, hey, how, how bad of that guy to share that detail to, to Joseph because look what it wound up. Look what happened to him. And what you don't realize until you know more of the story is that because that happened, because he goes into slavery, that God is going to providentially work in circumstances that's going to move Joseph into a place of leadership in Egypt. He's going to be second in command, and he's going to be able to provide in a a time of famine for his people. God providentially worked. The story of Job. Job in chapter 1 loses everything. 
family, wealth, and his body is stricken with boils. And in chapter two, he's scraping them off and his wife comes up and says, when are you going to curse God and die, you fool? And he says this, he says, shall we not also accept the bad and only take the good? For the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so you hear that story, who does Job attribute the loss of all these things to? He doesn't say, hey, Satan took away my family. Satan took away my wealth. He says, no, for the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Providence. Story of Jonah. God sent the fish to Jonah. The fish wasn't just wandering around in the sea and then Jonah just plops in. No, God sent the fish and God wired the fish in such a way that it could swallow Jonah. This isn't just Old Testament, New Testament. Hey, Paul, you gotta go to Jerusalem. You know how Paul gets to Jerusalem? He gets shipwrecked. He gets bit by a snake and yet he gets to Jerusalem through providential God's working in circumstances. And so maybe some of you, you look at the the circumstances of your life and things that have happened to you, things you would never wish for. And oftentimes we look at suffering as as a means of something to avoid. We look at hardships and difficulties as roadblocks. But if we understood the doctrine of providence that God works in mundane circumstances to accomplish his will, you will not view hardships and difficulties as roadblocks, but as detours for God to accomplish his will. And a detour isn't plan B. It's just a different way of getting there than what you probably would have wanted to. So it wasn't like, hey, plan A didn't work. God's got to give you a detour. No, God's just got the the, the map to get you there. And it might be different than what you think. How how am I going to get there? So um, again, God sends to Samuel, Saul, And he does it by letting a bunch of donkeys loose. You don't let those donkeys loose. You don't let that that property get away from you. Saul never comes in contact with Samuel. But God, in his providence, allows things to happen to accomplish his will. And so Saul finds Samuel. Samuel ends up speaking some encouraging words over Saul, but Saul doesn't know how to receive these words. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, the second half of verse 20, And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, I am not a Benjamite. Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the most humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Uh, I mean, Samuel shows up to Saul and he says, You're it. You're the guy. And, um... At this moment, Saul doesn't know who Samuel is, which is just mind-boggling because, hey, Samuel's a a judge. He's the first prophet of Israel. This would be like walking around saying, hey, do you know who the president is? He's, you know, I don't know. How do you not know? Right? Like, this is a key public figure, and Samuel he shares these things to Saul in a really powerful way. He says, hey man, like you just walked by here, but you're the guy. Saul's like, what do you mean I'm the guy? Well, like you're going, you're what Israel wants. 
you have it all. You have the look, you have the character, you have the things that we're looking for. You're gonna be king, brother. What do you mean, me? But, but I'm from Benjamin. I mean, back in Judges 20, our tribe got decimated. There's more 600 of us. We're a small tribe. I'm from this lowly, small town, hick town, you know, like backwoods, nobody. And you're saying, why, why me? Why me? And so what you see again, again, Saul's not a bad first choice. He's obedient to his father and there's humility. Right, you want humility in a leader. And then, yeah, right away he says, hey, uh, um, why me? Uh, eventually you're gonna see um, Saul's humility go away. Give him power and authority and um, and yet Samuel says, you're, you're the guy. You, you have the look, you have the things we're looking for and, and Saul, I, I, this doesn't make sense. How could you say things like this to me? And what I want us to see in that statement, you know, this guy, he's from a small town, you know, Hicktown, not, not from, you know, the big city and opportunity. God uses nobodies. God uses nobodies. And I, I um, since preaching Acts last year, we probably finished up around this time last year, uh, I wanted to on repeat continually remind us that God uses nobodies. The whole book of Acts is just a big movement of God by a bunch of people that you probably don't know who they are. The, the Antioch, this, the first big sending church in the early church was a movement started by a group of people. That, that's all that gets named. That's all that gets listed. It wasn't like, hey, Peter, the, the, the megachurch pastor of the day who wrote a bunch of great books and had the podcast and had the social media. You know, he showed up and he planted a church and yeah, it exploded. No, just some people that wanted to be faithful to God, God did some miraculous things to them. And so on repeat, over and over, I want us to believe that God can do the supernatural. I want us to believe that Sterling Heights could be a hub and Metro Detroit that's known for just being a godly city. I believe that's possible. I believe God wants to do a work still. And if I didn't think he wanted to do a work still, he would be here. If he didn't want to do a work through us, he'd say, okay, let's, let's wrap it up. This is done. But I truly believe that God has still equipped his people to make believers and disciples of all nations. I believe that's happening today. And, and so I want us to, you know, Saul here is saying, hey, I'm, I'm a nobody. You, you might say, hey, I didn't come from a great family. I, my family's not Christian. Or I, I grew up in a, in a socioeconomic status that wasn't great. I'm not a Bible college grad. I'm not a communicator. I'm not a pastor. God can monumentally use you at your workplace. God can monumentally use you in the public arena, the places that you go and you hang out. Like God can use you. And I just wonder, do you believe that? which is why we're doing this God resolutions thing. Because I want you to believe that God can do something in you and through you and it's gonna, it's gonna be beyond you. But what's your God-sized goal? What's your God-sized dream? Um, and and um, my hope is that um, we don't do the same things as Saul because you're gonna see Saul's insecurities come out and they're gonna play out. Um, 
And for us, we can have all those same insecurities. It's gonna be important for us to identify those insecurities so that we can inform our hearts of truth and not feelings. And yet, despite Saul's insecurities, God still has Samuel anoint him to be king. 1 Samuel 10, verse one. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people and you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So, so Saul gets anointed as king and Samuel gives him four, um, the first one is just that he's gonna have victory in battle, but four signs, as he continues on for Samuel 10, four signs that this is really God, that God is really in this. And in those signs, none are more important than the fact that that the Lord's spirit is gonna come upon Saul. And I see that in verse six. But that the Lord's spirit is gonna come upon Saul and it's going to change his heart. And finally, Samuel gave Saul one clear command to follow at the end of the sequence of signs. Starting in verse seven. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before Gilgal and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. God places one restriction on Saul, right? So he just says, hey, just wait till I come to you. Um, but, pri- but beyond that, he says, you know, do for yourself whatever the occasion requires. You know, like um, do what your hands finds to do. I mean, that's a sense of freedom. And, and what we'll see is, is in the scriptures is that God gives people immense freedoms with limited restrictions. And yet people look at those limited restrictions in such a way that think God is oppressing or restricting some high that you, 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 would, you wouldn't otherwise get from following him. We see that in the Bible. We see that happen over and over. And we see that in our own lives right, how people view the Bible. You, you, you talk to people in the, in the public world, in the secular world, and say, hey, what do you think about the Bible? Well, it's this old, irrelevant book that just seeks to make a bunch of rules and steal from me. I just want to do things my way. Um, what you'll see is that when God gives commands and rules and guidance, re- these restrictions are ultimately meant for you to actually enjoy freedom. That you don't venture out into things that are gonna steal from you, hurt from you, take from you. But God says, I've given you this vast field to play in. You look at Genesis. I've given you every tree to eat from, but this one tree, don't do it. Right, this immense freedom. Eat from my trees, enjoy me. God wants his creation to enjoy his creation. Just don't worship it. Right? And so he's just, you know, I'm giving this one little restriction, and yet Saul is not going to obey God. He's going to fail that test. And Saul's failure to heed the restriction becomes a key turning point later in his story. Um, and so all the signs had come to pass on Saul's return home. And when Saul returns home, people knew that there's something different. Verse 11, if you have your Bibles open, shows that. They, they say, hey, where did Kish's son go? 
Is this Kish's son? Is, is he really the, the guy? I mean, I mean, what's changed about him? But notice the interaction Saul has with his uncle. Verse 14, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when they saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly, the donkeys have been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Right? And so Saul gets back, his uncle's there. He says, hey, where, where were you? He goes, oh, you know, we really had to go all the way out there to find these donkeys, but they weren't there. But Samuel was there. And Okay, well, what, did, what did Samuel tell you? Samuel probably shared with you some, some pretty awesome things. Well, oh, he just said the donkeys were good. Uh, he knew that the donkeys were good and that I didn't have anything to worry about. And yeah, that, that pretty much sums up my conversation with Samuel. Why are you leaving out the details, man? Well, like the thing that, if any of you have some weird power and authority that I don't know about that you like rule another country and you come and tell me that I'm going to be king of it. Oh, I'm bragging about it. And I'm going to be king. Oh yeah. Um, kidding. But he, that, that's what happens. Right? He, he gets told he's going to be king and yet he doesn't tell anybody about it. Why does Saul not tell people that he's going to be, that, hey, I'm, I just got anointed king to be king over Israel. Because he doesn't view himself to be worthy of it. He doesn't view himself worthy of the calling. Again, this is obvious as the story continues. Like his insecurities are at play. So Samuel calls all of God's people together and he tells the nation, essentially, you've rejected God and you've desired these other things for, for a king. And so here's what we got for you. Hey, here's the announcement. Um, King, where are you? Well, the king's not anywhere to be found. Look at this. Verse 22. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when, this, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen. There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Right? So this is a very anticlimactic moment, right? Samuel's about to give the announcement that Saul is king. And he's like, hey, you said this is what you want and this is what you've wanted. And I've shared with you everything that God told you what was going to happen by giving you a king like this. But nonetheless, you said, this is what you want. And because you want that, here's our guy, and Saul's not there. And you imagine, like, why did you gather us all here? Well, I mean, some of us have traveled great distances, hence the fact that Saul was hiding behind baggage. Right? So, well, we've come a great distance. We, where's our king? And unless divine intervention happens, I mean, God does say, hey, he's over there. And so, so the whole crowd's like, okay, we're, we're on our way over there. And then the guy stands up, and they're like, they're mesmerized by him. They're like, whoa, right? Like they're like looking up and there he is and this big, powerful, strong, handsome guy is there, you know, just, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming he's ripped. I, I, if he's not, I'm, if he's got a, a gut, I'm, I'm shocked. Um, but they're mesmerized by him, 
right? Saul, it was the image of what they thought they wanted. But there's our king. Long live the king. They're ready to pledge allegiance to this guy. And it's so easy for us to do the same. It's so easy for us to have this utopia in our minds of what the good life would be like, what I want to pledge allegiance to, that, that my ambition, my aim of life, if, it could just, if I could just have this, right? They just wanted a king. We just wanted what everybody else had. Then life would be good. Then we'd have it all. And they're going to learn the hard way that what they wanted wasn't necessarily good. And we don't say that in our culture today. We don't say, hey, maybe what you're desiring, maybe what you're feeling isn't actually good. But I'm telling you, I promise you, what I know about God's word, you venture outside of what God has for you. It will not end good. Will not be fun or pleasing or enjoyable. But, but hey, this is what I want. This is what I think that I need. And this has the image. It has everything. Right? Like if I just have blank, fill in the blank. You know, if I just had this appearance, if I just had these clothes and those shoes, and then like, is that wrong? Is it wrong to care about your appearance? It's not. It's not wrong to care about your appearance, your physical health. That's a good thing. Paul would say in 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy, he says it to Timothy, okay? Um, but he says physical training is of some value. Uh, I mean, there's value to taking care of yourself. There's a value to being presentable. There's a value to those things. He says, but godliness has value in all things. And so what he does is he just says, it's just priority. It's not that they're not both important. It's just that one's more important because it's not just, he says, godliness isn't just good for this life, but also the life to come. You don't take your six pack to heaven. You don't take your, your PR bench press to heaven. You don't get to walk around the streets of gold saying, yeah, that's what I can do. You know, like, um, and, and in that, we do the same things at times. We say, this is what we want. I just want this. And what we can do is we can move our worship from the creator to the creation. We can do it with our careers, right? If I, if I just attain that job, if I just attain this position, and if I can just have it, th th then waking up to my nine to five isn't going to be hard because I have what I want. I, I... But your career is not a bad thing. Having a good career is not a bad aim or desire because guess what? Money matters. We didn't take an offering today. Money matters, right? Like, like, it just does. You pay bills with it. And yet, to have that be your total aim, your highest aim, it's a misplaced priority. Because ultimately, when we look at these things and think they have such an image, just like these people did with Saul, he had the image. You know, he has everything Maybe on the other side of that image is not what you think it is. And it might not be that on the other side of that image is something horrible. It might not be that. But it might not be everything that you hope it is. And so this is just week one of a tale of two kings where we get to examine the reigns of Saul and David. But as we kick off, we see God's people desiring something. But in their desire, they're desiring a lesser thing. 
And I just see in our day and age the temptation to desire lesser things. And again, it's why we're doing God resolutions. I want you to take that seriously. I want you to go home and just pray and examine, hey, God, what do you want from me? How can I pursue you deeper and more? David's a man after God's own heart. How do I go after your heart, God? What are you seeking to do in me and through me? I believe that God wants to do something through each and every one of you. I truly believe that. And I don't know about you, but I want my life to matter for the things that matter. I don't want to exchange the king for a king. Um, And it can be easy to do. If you're here and you don't know the king, um, he he came in human flesh 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus, the real king of the Jews, right? The, The real king of Israel, God's people. And he made a way that you could have relationship with him. If you never have before, what God did for you was, you know, sin, the brokenness of your life alienated you from God. God can't, if God is holy, he's set apart, he can't play with sin. And so when sin entered the world, we got alienated from God. But Jesus bridges the gap when he came and he, be, he took on your sin. He took on the sin of the world and he paid its penalty because what we're told in the scriptures is that, death, that, that sin has a penalty and it's death. And so he paid for that on the cross of Jesus, Calvary, for you, for me, for, <coughs> for those <coughs> who would put their faith and hope and trust in him for salvation. That's been made available to you today. It's through confession and repentance, a uh, confession of God, you are my Lord, and I'm going to follow you in obedience. It's as simple as that. You don't have to say those words, but that heart, that God, I want to follow you as Lord of my life. Don't do that, to, do that today if you never have. Make today that day. Let's pray.